Jacob. You remember Jacob, it's now as chapter 35 opens, it's been nearly 30 years since he uh, deceived his father, uh, since Esau wanted to kill him. You remember he fled and the first night he stopped at a city called Luz and he had a dream. And in this dream, he saw what we know today as, as Jacob's uh, ladder. And he named that place Bethel. He said, man, this is the house of God, which is what, what Bethel means. And he made a vow that one day, God, I'm going to return to this place. Now, 30 years have, have gone by. Now, as we all know, 20 of those years were spent with Laban. Seven years working for Leah, seven years working for Rachel, and then six years just accumulating his, his fortune. But here's the key thing. He's been back in Canaan now for 10 years. Um, when he first came back, you remember, he went into a place called, a city called Succoth, and he actually built a house there. He didn't just put up a tent, he actually built a house and stayed there for a few years. And then he moved to a place called Shechem, and when he got to Shechem, he actually bought property there. So he's, for whatever reason, he's not in a hurry uh, to get back to Bethel. He's been there 10 years, and he hasn't made it back to Bethel, despite the fact that Bethel is only 30 miles away. So it's not like this, it's this huge journey. It's just right over there. But he sits and he stays in Succoth for a while. He stays in Shechem for a while, but he never makes it to, to Bethel. And again, it's only 30 miles away. Now, while he's in Shechem, he even builds an altar. So there's some type of religious rituals or religious observances or, or things like that going on, but yet he's only 30 miles from, from Bethel. So what we need to understand is he might be physically close to Bethel, but spiritually he, he's not where he needs uh, to, to be. Now, I want you to, in, in fact, to show you this, I want you to look at his words and his actions after his daughter Dinah is raped. You'll remember uh, the, the, when, when he's raped, uh, when she is raped uh, there at Shechem, the, the son and the father uh, that come to uh, Jacob and say, hey, why don't you intermarry with us? And, uh, and, and Jacob was absolutely fine to go along with that, which just showed us, I mean, that would have just destroyed the purity of the Jewish people, but he was absolutely willing uh, to, to do that. Now, what that tells me is that during this 10 years, Jacob is, is he's, he's basically preoccupied with prosperity. Um, he's not so much worried about purity. So he, he may only be 30 miles from Bethel, but let's face it, he's, he's a long way from where he needs to be with the God of Bethel. And I, and I think this is important for us because I think in this case, Jacob is very similar to a lot of Christians. There's a lot of Christians that are going through the, like, like you remember Jacob built his altar at Shechem. A lot of us go to church. A lot of us go through the religious motions. A lot of us go through the religious rites and things like that. But the reality of that relationship is not there. Okay? And if we're honest, we've all faced times like that. We've all faced times where we're kind of not where we need to be with the Lord. Um, physically, we're in church. Physically, we're reading our Bible. Physically, we seem to be close to where we need to be. But, but in fact, spiritually, we're a long way from where we need to be. And today's lesson kind of shows us a pattern uh, for finding our way back, which, of course, is our, uh, is our title of our lesson. So let's look at how he gets back to Bethel. Uh, Genesis 35, verse 1. 
So God says to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled your brother Esau. So God shows up and says, All right, it's time. You've been dilly-dallying long enough. Ten years have gone by. Get up and go back to Bethel where you made your vow to return. Now, as far as we can tell from Scripture, God has been silent for ten years. You remember uh, when he appeared to Jacob when he left the land of Canaan? And he, he said, I am the God of Bethel. And then he spends 20 years in Mesopotamia, and he comes to, to him and he says, okay, it's time to go back to Bethel. It's time to leave. It's time to go back. And, but the fact is, he's been back 10 years, and God hasn't said anything to him about going back to Bethel. Now, that begs the question, why did God wait 10 years to, to step up and say, hey, you need to get back to Bethel? Well, I think the reason is, is that Jacob wasn't ready to listen. Jacob didn't have what, what we kind of refer to as ears to hear. Um, think about it this way. He's wrestled with this angel, but yet there's no sense of urgency to get back to Bethel. Now, I'm sure Jacob intended to get back there at some point, but for whatever reason, he just wasn't in a hurry. Now, it's not because he doesn't know the will of God. And, and we could stop right here and talk about us as Christians. It's not that we don't know the Bible. It's not that we don't know what God has told us to do, but sometimes we just can't get it done. And that's like Jacob. Jacob knows what God has said. God's told him twice to come back to Bethel. So, so the fact is, I don't know what would have been the point of God telling him again. He's already told him twice. See, it's not that God needs to tell him again. It, what, it ha what needs to change is Jacob's willingness to hear and to obey. So... Something has changed in the last uh, chapter that now makes Jacob have ears to hear. Well, what is that? Well, remember, his daughter has been raped, and his sons have killed all the, all the men of the city of Shechem. Now, when he did that, that put his security at risk. All of a sudden, he's, he's in danger. Look at Genesis thirty four thirty. These are his own words. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me. By making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I will be destroyed. Now let me tell you, Jacob is right. He's in a lot of danger. He is, he is, his sons have killed all the men of this city. Uh, the relatives, the people of the surrounding cities, I'm sure, they're all like, man, what, what's going on here? We've got to take care of this problem. So he's in a lot of danger, and because he's in danger, guess what? Now he's ready to listen. So God speaks at this time and says, all right, get up and go to Bethel, and now he'll, he'll go because things, circumstances have changed in his life. Now I want to make one quick observation here before we move on. God allowed Jacob to go his own way for 10 years, and Jacob reaped the consequences of that disobedience. But in the end, guess what? He goes back to Bethel just the way God had originally purposed. Now, let me say this, like Jacob, every one of us has the option, the choice of whether you're going to obey God or not. And sometimes when we resist him, God will let us go our own way. He'll say, okay, you want to walk down that path? You go right ahead and walk down that path. And let me tell you, while you're walking down that path, God will not holler and fuss and fret and fume like a, like a petulant parent. He just kind of steps back and says, okay, that's what you want to do. 
you go ahead and, and do it. You walk in, in disobedience. Now, is he grieved by our disobedience? Absolutely. But he allows us to go our own way, and he allows us sometimes to reap the consequences of that disobedience. And then there comes a point where everything changes. When some situation occurs, or, or maybe we're in danger, or whatever the case may be, and when that happens, he allows us to walk into that situation, and then he speaks to us again when we're ready to listen. And then we talk, when we hear that voice, we, like Jacob, turn and go. I, I read this wonderful quote this week in, a, in an article I was reading. It said, people today want a Savior from hell, but we don't want a Savior from sin. And boy, that really hit me. I meditated on that. We want a Savior from hell, but we just want to keep walking in our disobedience. Let me tell you, God's not interested in that at all. He wants to save you from hell, but He wants to save you from sin. And so he, let me tell you, if you're a believer, you may go in that resistance for a while, but let me tell you, if you're a believer, if you're elect, if you're chosen, he will turn you back and say, get back on the right path. It's going to happen, and that's exactly what happened with, uh, with Jacob. So God's will can be resisted for a while, sure, and we'll pay the consequences for that, but ultimately, God is going to create a situation or an atmosphere which he is, we will hear his voice. There is no doubt about that, if, if you are a, a believer. Verse 2 through 4. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourself and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near uh, Shechem. Now, let me tell you what this tells me. For ten years, Jacob's been wandering around, and there's been a lot of, uh, very, a lot of leniency in his house, to put it a better way, right? Um, he's let things go in his household that he shouldn't let go. There are people in his household that have these little idols, these foreign gods. So, so he's not been holding very high these standards of purity and, and holiness. But now, guess what? Now that he's getting ready to go meet God, he's cleaning house. Any of y'all ever done that before? We've all, I can understand that completely. There's all things we kind of let go. And then one day, God speaks and we think, boy, it's time to go to someplace new. And you're like, I got to clean this stuff up. And that's what we do. So I can, under, I can understand that. Now, Jacob had to be aware of the presence of these, of these household gods in his camp. He had, to, he had to know about that. By the way, one reason, you remember when they left Laban, Rachel stole those gods and she hid them. You remember that? Well, she, it never says she gave them back or she buried them or they destroyed them or anything. She may have, he may have even let her keep these. Uh, and, and so that kind of set a precedent in the camp. If the, if the wife could have them, then why not everybody else? Whatever reason, during this time frame, he's been very lenient with uh, the standards of holiness and purity. Again, one of Jacob's big problems, he's too passive. As a man, as a father, as a husband, he was passive with his wives, he's passive with his children, and now you can see he's passive with his whole household allowing these uh, idols. By the way, so God says, okay, get rid of them. Take your, idol, uh, your idols. And, by, and he mentions earrings. And you may wonder why that is. It seems like if you... There's a scripture in, I think, Hosea chapter 2, 
where God says this, I will punish her, talking about Israel, for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry. So there's something about these earrings and this jewelry and stuff that has something to do with the worshiping of false gods. We don't, it was a long time ago, we may not understand all that, but that's why he said, bury those false gods, bury your earrings, bury those things you put on to worship and, and get rid of those kind of things. Okay, verses 5 through 7. And it says, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel, which means God of Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Jacob and his household were in a lot of danger because of what his sons had done. So, so he is obviously, he's got every reason to fear some kind of reprisal, but it turns out nothing happens because God took care of the problem. Again, we see this over and over and over in Jacob's life. When Jacob is in the most danger, that's really when he's the safest because that's when God steps in. That's when he has to rely on, on God, and God does the same thing this time. Now, Jacob at this point is in a really good spot, right? He's wrestled with this angel. The, the angel has changed his name from Jacob, which means deceiver, to Israel, which means prince of God. He has, he, has, he has been blessed. He's been delivered from this danger. He's finally come back to Bethel. He's at a really, really, really good spot. And then sorrow strikes, okay? So he's turned the corner and obeying God. But let me tell you, this is a perfect lesson a life of obedience does not mean a life free from trials. Jesus said, in this world, what? You will have tribulation. You'll have trouble. So it's going to happen, and it happens to uh, Jacob. But by the way, oftentimes it's the trouble that keeps us from falling back away, doesn't it? It keeps us clinging. It keeps us, us holding on. So it, it's significant, I think, that in this chapter... When Jacob is at his highest point, it's when these sorrows uh, come into his life, these tragedies that come into his life. So let's look at these four sorrows. This is the first one, verse 8. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. And so he called its name Alan Bukuth, which means oak of weeping. Now this is kind of an odd statement, and you kind of got to read between the lines. Just out of the blue... They just throw this person out called Deborah, who was Rebecca's nurse. Now, you got to go way back in Genesis, way back into our study. Do you remember when um, uh, Isaac, uh, when Abraham sent his servant to Mesopotamia to get a wife for Isaac? Everybody remember that? And they found Rebecca. And, and if you'll go back and read, when Rebecca left, she took her maid or her nurse with her. Y'all remember that? So this is years, years. This is probably, this, this woman's probably 150 years old or so at this time. So she was Rebecca's nurse. So she would have cared for him when she was small. I'm sorry, when Jacob was small, she would have been one of the ones helping Rebecca uh, care for him. So I'm sure he had a very close uh, relationship with this lady. Now, what we are not told is how she came to be with him. If she's Rebecca's nurse, how does she end up being with Jacob. Well, the, the most likely explanation would be that she came to tell him that his mother had died. She was the messenger that came to the camp 
to tell him that his mother has died. And, and then after she delivered that message, she just stayed uh, with him. Now, her, her death would have been very tough for Jacob for two reasons. Number one, not only did he have a, a very close relationship with her because she helped raise him, but it also was the last link to his mother because he had a very close relationship with his mother. She's dead. Now the nurse is dead. And you can tell what it meant to him because he called it the oak of weeping. The oak of weeping. So it, it, this has, it's a very strong, uh, it's a real tragedy, a real strong influence on, on him. Now, at this point, God reiterates his, his blessing, verses 9 through 12. So God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aran, and he blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, which is El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. And the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Now, let me tell you, we've heard this blessing so many times by now, haven't we? Over and over. We've heard it given to Abraham. We've heard it given to Isaac. Now we hear it given to, uh, to, to Jacob. So there's nothing new here. But God is just reiterating the same blessing that he gave to him 30 years ago. He's saying to Jacob, Jacob, I'm still here. I'm still here. The promises are still in effect. The blessings are still... 30 years have gone by. You've been away. You, a lot of that time you've walked in disobedience to me. You've gone through a lot of troubles. But I'm still here. I'm still here and the promises are still valid. By the way, I think it's also important that God reiterates the name change. You see... Let me see if I can explain this. When, when 30 years before, when Jacob left Canaan to go to Mesopotamia, God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation. And then 20 years later, he comes back and God says, I'm going to change your name to Israel. Now 10 more years have gone by. And what God does, he puts those two blessings together. He reiterates the blessings that I'm going to make you a great nation. But he also reiterates that I'm the, I'm the one who, who changed your name to, to Israel. And so I think this is just a great assurance for Jacob, and he's going to need it because he's fixing to go through. I think it's important that he, God came to him right after the death of his nurse and right before, uh, right before he, inv- he goes into these other tragedies. Verses 13 through 15. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him. Bethel. So this is kind of a rededication, if you want to think of it that way, a rededication event for, uh, for Jacob. And, and by the way, if his sons and his family are watching, this is really the first clear evidence, the, the building of this altar and all of the things that go on here. This is the really first clear evidence of Jacob's faith in God. And I'm going to be honest with you, to be quite honest, he has, his faith has been poorly practiced in front of his children. He has not been the example that he needs to me. But the time is about to come when his boys are going to have to take up the torch. Okay, The faith of Jacob is going to be carried on through his uh, children. Sometimes done very well, sometimes done uh, not so well. The second sorrow to hit Jacob, verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, which, by the way, Ephrath would eventually be renamed to Bethlehem, and, of course, we know what, what, what that city's all about. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. So if you look at the, uh, if you look at the map right there, 
Uh, he started up in a place called Shechem. They came down about 30 miles to a place called Bethel. About another 25 or 30 miles south of that is, uh, is um, a place called Ephrath in that day, which is modern-day uh, Bethlehem. And when they get close to that, or still a ways from that, Rachel goes into labor. And all it tells us is that it was a hard labor. Verses 17 to 19, And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai, which means son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is still there to this day. Now, I, th- I think it's significant that in Moses' day, Moses says that that pillar still there. Now, by the way, this in, Moses is writing this book of Genesis, right? And, and they're about to go in and take the land. And he's saying what happened here has probably happened 1,500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, a long time ago. And he's saying that pillar is still there. By the way, you can go there today and the tomb of Rachel is still there today. Now, obviously, it's been built over and there's been churches there and there's been a mosque there built over it when the when the Muslims took over the land, and they, there's, but you can still go there today. And I think for them, it would have been a great interest. I mean, can you imagine you're about to go into this land, and, and there's these, he's, Moses is telling you these stories, and then you realize, man, when we go there, we're going to be able to stop and see that, right? There's something about visuals. Do, do, by the way, do we do, still do the same thing today? Sure, we do the exact same thing today. We put up monuments, we put up plaques, we put up pillars. This, this idea that we need to, to remember. You see this all throughout the Bible. Uh, by the way, you see it in the New Testament as well. We just did this last week. For as often as you eat this bread and as often as you drink this cup, do this and remember. It's a visual, isn't it? It's a, we, that's why we do it. It, 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 it. it helps us to remember. It helps us to commemorate. So it was done in the Old Testament, and it's still done in the New. Verse 21. Now, this is really interesting, and this te- I'm going to tell you today, this is why I love to study the Bible. So I'm reading along, and I come to verse 21, and it's just this odd statement. Israel journeyed on, and he pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. Now, if you were just reading your Bible, you would just read that and move on, right? I doubt anybody would stop but when you're teaching, it forces you to look things up, right? That's why I like to teach. So I look up the Tower of Eder. What, what, why would that be in there? Well, in Hebrew, that, the, the word is migdal eater. Migdal means tower. Eder means flock. So this is something that's called the Tower of the Flock. And this is the first time that it's mentioned in Scripture. Now, Eusebius, who was a Christian historian who lived from A.D. 260 to 340, so he lived about 300 years after Jesus, he wrote that in his day, so about 300 years after Christ, the Tower of the Flock, or Migdal Eder, was still, it was still standing. And it was located about one Roman mile outside of Bethlehem. Now, a Roman mile, just in case, is pretty much what... There's about 147 yards difference between a Roman mile and a U.S. mile. So they're, they're pretty close. So about a mile outside of Bethlehem was this tower. 
Now, it wasn't a huge tower. If you go look at it, it doesn't still exist today, but in, there are examples of it. So it was probably a couple stories high. And they used it for uh, two or three things. They could store stuff in there. Uh, they used it for, they, you could climb up in it and watch out over the flocks. So it was kind of a, it gave you a better line of sight. It could be used for protection and thunderstorms thunderstorms and things like that. So it was just this tower out in a field, and it was called the Tower of the Flock. And so Moses is telling us, he goes so to the Tower of the Flock, and, and that's about how far he goes. Now, you may think, well, what's, what's interesting about this? Well, here's why this is interesting. According to the Talmud, which is the Jewish writings, the flocks found in the area between Jerusalem and the Tower of Eder. Now, by the way, Jerusalem to Bethlehem is five miles if you go there today. You leave Jerusalem and go down to Bethlehem, it's five miles. So from Jerusalem to the Tower of Eder, all the flocks in that area were known, were deemed to be sacred or holy or consecrated. In other words, it was only the flocks in that area around Jerusalem that could be used in the temple sacrifice. Everybody with me? In fact, here's the actual, I don't know if y'all can read that, but this is the actual uh, statement from the Talmud. And it says, an animal that was found between Jerusalem and the Tower of Eder, or similar distance in any direction, the males are to be used as burnt offerings. The females can be used as peace offerings. So everybody with me? You couldn't just go to Jericho and get a lamb. The lambs that were used in the temple had to come from around from Jerusalem out to the Migdal Eder, which is the Tower of Eder. Now this is why this is cool. This means... The shepherds that watched over those flocks aren't ordinary shepherds. They are watching over the lambs that are going to be used in the sacrifices in the temple. Everybody with me? They're not just normal shepherds. These, guys, these are the ones that are choosing the lambs to be used in the sacrifices at the temple. Now, later on in the book of Micah, we get this prophecy. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. And gather together those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, O you, O tower of Eder or Migdal Eder, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. What? The former dominion kingship for the, daughter of ship, for the daughter of Jerusalem. So there's a prophecy in Micah that says, to you, tower, the kingship is going to come. The dominion, everybody with me? Okay. By the way, just a few verses later, you get this. O you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from of ancient days. Now, based on those two prophecies... Jewish writers for many, many years had concluded that in all the places of Israel, it would be the Tower of Eder where the arrival of the Messiah would be proclaimed. This little tower that watched over these flocks just outside of Bethlehem, by the way, it's exactly what happened. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is what is so fascinating to me. 
the birth of Jesus, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, is announced to the shepherds who watch over the lambs that are going to be used in the temple sacrifice. Now that is amazing, is it? See, so here you are, this just this tower of eater, it's just a passing thing, and it's just it, this little tower, is all, it's all just entwined in the prophecy of Jesus Christ. I mean, the Bible is an amazing, amazing book, if we'll just take time to really... See, I say this all the time, if, he, if, the Holy, if this is an inspired book, really inspired book, and, the, and, and, and he puts in there, the Holy Spirit puts in there, he puts it there for a reason. Yes? Somebody came up to me earlier and they were reading ahead to the next chapter. And they said, man, what is this next chapter about? It's just a bunch of names. And I said, I don't know, but I can tell you it's there for a reason. I don't know what it's about, but I can tell you it's got to be there for a reason. Or the Holy Spirit wouldn't have put it there. Now, it's up to us to uncover, obviously, what that reason is. And we'll get there next week. Number three, verses 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Okay, so again, we just kind of get this statement out of the blue. Reuben, who is Jacob's firstborn son, goes in and has an illicit sexual relationship with his father's concubine. So you remember Jacob has two wives, Rachel and Leah, and he has two concubines, which are their maids. You remember the lesson, the Battle of the Brides, where they're all buying his time and trying to outdo one another by having children. It's just an app. It was a nightmare. Anyway, so by the way, you, you deal with stuff like that, it just never goes away. It never goes away. It always, the drama always stays. So for some reason, Reuben goes in and lays with Bilhah, who is Rachel's um, maid. Now, you know, I heard one of the commentators that I read said, well, this was an act of incest. Well, I wouldn't quite go that far, right? I mean, it's not his, it's not his, he's not related to her, it's not his mother, it's not really even his stepmother, but, it, but the best way I can, it's, it's not right. Everybody with me? <laughs> I don't know how the best way to describe it, but it, it, it's illicit. It's not, it's not right. Now, here's this question. Why would he do this? What, what, is, what, is the, what is the point of this, that, that the Bible just puts that in there? What, why would Reuben go and do something like this? Well, a few things. This seems to be a one-time thing. It doesn't seem to have any... It wasn't like some, some long, drawn-out affair or anything like that. It seems from the language that's used in the Hebrew, it was a one-time thing. Also notice there's no mention of lust or desire. There's no mention of her beauty. Um, in fact, she would have been fairly on up in age at, at this point. There's no mention of any of that stuff. It's just a statement of fact. He lay with his father's concubine. Now, I believe, if you read the language, the reasoning is in that statement. The reason he did it was because she was his concubine. Now, there's a story in the Old Testament that helps us out here. And I'm not going to... You can go back and read it later. It's found in 1 Kings 1 and 2. And it's, this, this, it's a long story, and I'm going to kind of summarize it for you, but it kind of helps us out. Y'all, everybody remember David and Bathsheba? Everybody knows the story of David and Bathsheba. Well, Bathsheba had a son. Anybody know his name? His name was Solomon, right? But David has, another, has a, a wife by another woman, and I'm sorry, has another woman as a wife, and she has a son, and his name is Adonij- Adonijah. Let's see if I can say that. Adonijah, okay? So David is getting old, 
And as he's getting old, he's not naming his successor. And there's a lot of pressure building on him. You need to name a successor. Who's going to be the next king? Who's going to be the next king? And so Bathsheba kind of goes in and, and speaks in his ear and says, you know, you really need to make... And by the way, Adonijah was the firstborn. Solomon was not. But Bathsheba convinces David to name Solomon as, as king. And so he does. The word gets out. Well, Adonijah, he doesn't like that. So he comes to Bathsheba and he says, she says, do you come in peace? And he says, I do. And she says, what do you want? And he said, I want to ask you one thing and, and please don't deny me. And she said, okay, what is it? And he said, give me as a wife this lady named Abishag the Shumanite. Okay? He said, that all I want is her as my, as my wife. Will you ask David if he will give her, or ask Solomon. David is dead at this time. And he says, ask Solomon, will you give her uh, to me as, as wife? And so Bathsheba goes in to David, I'm sorry, to Solomon, and says, hey, I need to ask you something. And he said, okay, what is it? And she said, uh, Adonijah wants Abishag the Shumanite as, as wife. And Solomon says, he's a dead man. <clears throat> right out, he said, he's a dead man. He won't live the rest of this day. And he sent a guy out and had him killed. Now, why would he do that? You see, Adonijah knew that to claim the king's concubine or the king's harem was to claim the kingship. I mean, that's the way it was in that day. If you possessed the concubine, then you could possess the kingdom. It was like a claim on the kingship. Solomon knew what he was asking was treason, and Solomon says he won't live to see the next day, and he didn't. And see, what I'm thinking is this is the same explanation for what Reuben did. See, like Adonijah, he's the older brother, but he don't want to take any chances that the, that the, the head of the family ship won't be passed down to him so he just takes it on his own, and he possesses the concubine. He goes in and sleeps with, with Bilhah, and, it's, and he assumes, in his mind, I'm assuming the headship of the family. Years later, chapter 49, on his deathbed, all it says here is that he heard about it. On his deathbed, Jacob would say this, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. You are preeminent in dignity, and you are preeminent in power. But you are unstable as water, and you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. So years later, he says, you think you're going to be the head of this family? You're not. In fact, he, said, uh, he, he, he ends up getting scattered. He doesn't get any of the inheritance because of what he did. And, I, and, and Jacob never forgot that. So again, I think that's, that statement is just there in plain fact. But I think he was trying to assume preeminence. And because of what he tried to do through the works of the flesh, Jacob said, no, you won't get, uh, you won't get any of it. Verse 22 to 26. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. <clears throat> the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. The sons of Rachel, Jacob, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilphah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aran. Now, Jacob is beginning to fade from the limelight. Now, Jacob's going to live a while longer, but what, what, is, what this chapter is doing is just kind of wrapping up his story. And so his, it, it mentions again his 12 sons because they are about to come to the uh, forefront. Now, previous to this time, God had always chosen one son, right? With Abraham, he chose Isaac, 
uh, with Isaac, he's chose Jacob. But now he's gonna, that's changing. He's not gonna choose one of these boys. All 12 of these are gonna produce the people of, of God. But he's got one more sorrow to deal with in his life. Verses 27 to 29. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Jacob and Esau buried him. By the way, you get to this last sorrow, and he has to bury his father. And the way you read the text, you would think that it almost sounds like he arrived in Hebron and his father died, right? But, if, but that's not true at, at all. In fact, that's not the case. I won't say it's not true, but it's not the case. If you read other passages in Genesis, he actually gets to spend 12 years with his father. So there's a period of about 12 years that, that, that he knows his father and he's able to spend uh, with his father before Isaac dies. What, what the chapter here, what Moses is doing here in this chapter, is he, he's just kind of presenting the death of Isaac to kind of close out the history of Jacob. Everybody with me? Because after this, we're going to move on to the sons. And it becomes about Joseph and Benjamin and, and all these other boys and the things that they do. So this chapter is just really closing out this, uh, uh, this, this kind of last period of Jacob's uh, history. So next week, we're going to turn to Genesis 36. I guarantee you, if you read ahead in this chapter, it doesn't look very interesting. Uh, it's a whole lot of names. But as I said, it's there for a reason. And so we will find out next week. Uh, what that reason is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Easter.